Hey there, this is Brian. I'm the host of the Engaging Missions show. If you've found this show for the first time, I did want to take a second to let you know that this show is not currently in production. You're certainly welcome to check out all of the archives, but we don't have new episodes coming out at the moment. However, I did want to take a second to highlight one of the sponsors that sponsored the show a while ago. They're not currently sponsoring the show, but if you're looking for a place to invest in the kingdom, I'd recommend checking out Mega Voice Audio Bibles. You can find them at megavoice.com, or you'll find a link in the show notes. And I would encourage you to just check that out and see if maybe that's a fit for your giving. There's no compensation here or anything like that. I just wanted to highlight them. And with that, I'll get you back into the regular program. This is the Engaging Missions Show, episode 246. This week we're talking with Steve Shermer about answering some of the difficult questions missionaries face. It sounds hypocritical, but I say you sign the document. If you sign the document and hold to the document, you might as well stay home. Welcome to the Engaging Missions Show, where we are bringing missions home. Here's your host, Brian Ensminger. Thanks so much for stopping by and welcome to the show. Our goal is to equip challenge and inspire you. And I do want to mention that this show is made possible in part by generous support from people like you. Visit engagingmissions.com slash patron to learn more about how you can be involved. This week, I have a bunch of people to say welcome to. Mike, Lori, Charles, Gregory, Joel, Paul, Cynthia, Marva, David, and Vincent. And if I missed somebody, I'm sorry, there were a bunch and I think that I got them all. All of you recently liked the Engaging Missions Facebook page, Glad to connect with you there. If you're listening and you haven't connected on Facebook, visit facebook.com slash engaging missions and we can connect there or just tap through to the show notes and you'll find links right there as well. This week, we're going to be talking with our guest about the challenge of walking in integrity when going to places where the gospel isn't readily welcomed. And we're also going to get his take on the question of whether or not we should sign the paper if we're going to a place where they're saying the gospel shouldn't be presented. I think this is going to be a very deep and insightful conversation. I welcome your feedback on this topic, and I do think that it's going to be really valuable for you. With that, we're going to head right to our time with Steve. All right, today I am incredibly happy to have with me Steve Shermer. He spent 13 years as a missionary in Asia, and now he's the president of Silk Road Catalyst. He advocates for multiplying disciples and churches among the gospel-deprived, but he also has what I think is a really needed and interesting take on walking in integrity while also gaining access to places where the gospel isn't really readily welcomed. So I, I think that's going to be a great conversation. Steve, welcome to the show. Yes, Brian, thank you for having me. Oh, this is absolutely my pleasure. I, I so appreciate you taking the time to do this and, and working this into your schedule. So let's, let's kind of set the stage right here because we're I, I want to spend some time talking about this idea of walking in integrity and also getting access to places. And you've you've actually written a paper, the legitimate presence and reaching those who have little or no access to the gospel. What is the size and the reality of the need, and what happens when we get it right? All right. So so yeah, the presence of legitimacy and missions is what it's called, and it's actually being formed into a small book. Oh, nothing, cool. Nothing nothing major. Nothing that's for sale is just going to be available when it's done. So I was actually just working on that this weekend. You know, when you ask the question about the size of the need, yeah, I go back to three numbers that I like to talk about. 2.1 billion, 47,000, and 1,600. So in the world today, there's 2.1 billion people who have never heard the gospel, not because our neighbor here in the Bible Belt didn't go across the street to share the gospel with someone. It's because these 2.1 billion actually live in a place where no one can actually go across the street and share the gospel with them. Mm. And so they just don't have the access to it that we have. So that's the first thing. The 47,000 are the number of people from the 2.1 billion that die every day. So they enter eternity never hearing the gospel because they didn't have access to the gospel. And then the 1600 is 1600 languages, according to, I believe, Wycliffe. So there's many languages without the Bible, but there are 1600, as of the last time I checked, that don't have anyone actively trying to translate the Bible into those languages. Wow. Um, so there's millions of people that don't even have a chance to read Scripture yet, not even on the horizon yet, because no one's doing it. 
And what happens when we get it right in terms of reaching them? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, think, I think the obvious answer in all that is they get to hear the greatest message of all time. They get the same opportunities that you and I have been afforded here in the States of, of being around it probably all of our life, whether we've believed it all of our life's a different story. But, mm. you know, they get, they get the chance to connect with the one that created them. And they get the, the chance to be loved by a father, whether they had one or not growing up, to be connected with their creator, and also to be used by their creator in the future. Wow. Yeah, that, that's great. And I've heard some stats that are similar to what you shared. I'm wondering, when you share those with people, in general, do people kind of take that in stride? What happens when people hear something about 2.1 billion people without access, 47,000 people dying daily? What, what happens when people hear that? I think, I, w- I, would, I would guess that most people probably get overwhelmed. Yeah. Where do you start? Mm-hmm. And, and I, you know, 20 years ago when I first started looking at it, I probably felt the same way. You know, where do you start? And, you know, I think... It, if someone could just learn to take small steps in learning and finding ways to be involved with serving them, then they begin to realize that it is possible to reach them. But I think, you know, being overwhelmed, but also thinking the task is too big, maybe it scares some people away. But some people, it, it does the opposite. It, it stirs them into action because they're so overwhelmed by the size or the scope mm. of the need that they're thinking, well, I don't, I don't have any other reason not to be involved. I need to be engaged. I, I've seen, a, I've seen a, a wide spectrum of responses from people, but I think it's normal. So you find both. Hmm. And I know for me, I try to work with both to try and guide them and lead them based on where, where they're at in that. Wow. That, that's good. We'll, we'll probably dig into that a little bit more in, in a couple of minutes, but I would like to spend a little bit of time getting to know you because a lot of us probably haven't heard of you or don't know you that very well. And I'm wondering a little bit about your background. How, how is it that you came to faith? Well, I was trying to remember now, 20 years old. Hmm. I had grown up in a church, but I wouldn't say I came to faith during those early years. It was when I was in college. My roommate, I, I grew up in an independent Baptist church. And then about high school, my parents transitioned to a a different kind of Baptist church, but still evangelical. In college, I had gotten to that place where I didn't want to go back, and I wasn't involved anywhere. And I had a roommate who was my one of my best friends from high school. We went to the same college. He he one day randomly went to church, but he grew up Catholic, so he went to a Catholic church. And Mm -hmm. I don't know what it was about him going, but it stirred me to go. So I went and found a Baptist church. No, that's what I knew at the time. So that's mm-hmm. where I went. And I went, and just the short of the story is about six months later, I realized that I was not a follower of Christ. And and so it was in that moment that I became one. And then I was soon baptized, probably a few weeks after that. that that's really interesting. I, I appreciate you sharing that. I, I hear so many different stories of how people came to faith. One of the things that I'm wondering is I think about that, there's in my mind, there's a, a bit of a departure from being in your 20s and you know, coming to faith, being baptized, and then feeling a call to vocational ministry. How, how did God begin to work in your life to call you toward vocational ministry? Well, that's, that's somewhat, in my opinion, a funny story, because three oh. months after I became a believer, I ended up in Glorieta, New Mexico, at a, at a camp, Southern Baptist camp in, called Glorieta. I can't remember the exact name of it. But it was a student week, so there's about 1,500 college students there. And sometime during that week, it's like a youth camp on steroids for college students. Okay. And it was an amazing time. And by the end of the week, I just had this sense of this ministry calling. But, you know, growing up in a church, I I got what that was, but I didn't like what I felt. Mm. And when I felt that nudge, I... I said no, and I almost in some ways internally made a deal with God, because in that moment of having that calling, I thought, well, if God calls, if I say yes to ministry, I'm afraid he's going to send me off to Africa. 
I'm going to live out in the bush. I'm going to live in a grass hut and I'm going to be eating bugs for the rest of my life. <laughs> yeah. And that, those were my literal thoughts. So when, when I, I don't even know why that came to mind, but I was like, well, no, I'm not doing this. So I internally made a deal and I said, Lord, if I can say yes to this, then I'll say yes to whatever this is that you're doing. And I would say it took four years. Mm. Again, back at Glorietta, the same place, the nudge started coming back. But I had gone through an amazing four years of being discipled by our college pastor, serving, serving in a homeless shelter and just different things. So I was at a different stage then. And at that point, I knew when the nudge came back, I was ready to say yes, even I was more afraid to say no and be disobedient than to say yes and end up in Africa. Wow. That that's incredible. And and when you felt that that call, did you then immediately make plans? What what did preparation and moving toward that look like in your life? Well, I made the commitment not knowing what was going to happen. I still thought in the back of my head, I loved college ministry, so I'll just do that in the US. Hmm. I had no plans to go abroad. I went right back to my full-time job, and I continued to work for another year before I actually ended up in Asia a year Mm -hmm. later. But the preparation, I have a very unconventional path of preparation for me, (laughs) not one I would propagate for people to follow, but I didn't have any formal missionary training or anything like that. I just basically dove into the deep end of the pool and say, let's swim. And I did it with people around me, and I constantly asked questions and, and tried to learn what I could. I just, I just, for me, I did it through a very unconventional route. Wow. I, you know, if you hadn't said something about not wanting to propagate, I probably would have dug a little bit further in that because I'm always <laughs> interested. I, I really am interested in the, the, the various ways that God moves and moves us, sometimes moves through our weakness, sometimes moves through the, the incredible way that he's made us. I, I'm wondering, you, you talked about preparation, about getting overseas. In your paper, you talked about meeting a man named Wang who hadn't had access to the gospel. Where in your preparation and going overseas, where did that fall in that? Well, that was, you could say, my first entry into becoming a missionary was okay. a six-week mission trip to Asia. Hmm. And, and that was a year after I you could say surrendered to that calling. Okay. Um, even though it was a, it was a six week trip, I ended up quitting my job. I knew I, I, it sounds weird. And again, I, I wouldn't uh, necessarily consult someone to go this route, but I ended up quitting my job, which I loved hmm. and just jumping out in faith. And I went over there, not even expecting that this would be what I'd be doing 18 years later. Hmm. But I went over there. The first three weeks were really difficult for me. In fact, those six weeks, the the food part was so difficult, I came home 26 pounds lighter than when I left. And so I, the first three weeks were really difficult, didn't eat a whole lot. Finally, I did eventually level out, but I I did what I was told to do and pushed through, but meeting Wong changed it. And and that was about halfway through the trip. Okay. Yeah, that's really, oh, keep, keep, please keep going. So thing with Wong was we decided to do a movie night in our hotel room. So if you can picture a a room with two twin beds, a desk, not much space, but there's 30 students plus the four of us on a team Mm. in the room. We were living on an electrical engineering campus that had the worst issues of keeping the electricity off. (laughs) And, And of course, this evening, the electricity shut down again, like it often did. And so we had 30 people plus us in the room with no electricity, obviously no movie. And eventually, what I learned previous to that, if I left my Bible out, someone usually picked it up and started reading it. So I always kept it on the bedside Hmm. of my bed, a bedside table. And so eventually someone picked it up. Eventually four groups were formed, and Wong was in my group. And we were all just sharing the gospel for about two hours, just going through it letting them ask questions, answering them, walking through Scripture. And then in the end, I asked the people in my group what they thought of what they learned. Wong spoke up and said, this stuff is true, and which intrigued me. So I dug a little deeper with him, and what I learned from him was that before walking into our hotel room, one, he'd never heard 
the name Jesus. Hmm. He had never heard of the Bible, which obviously meant he's never heard the gospel. And in one night, he heard all of it and went from never hearing anything to saying, this stuff is true, and this is what my country needs. Wow. To step three was, but I can't accept it because I'll lose my family and I'll lose my job. Hmm. And this was a very educated man. And so what changed me was meeting a guy that I've heard about, so hearing about these gospel-deprived people, but never mm-hmm. actually meeting one until that moment. And so meeting one and then seeing him go from basically atheism to saying something is true, that God exists and Christ exists and he's the one, to rejecting it, to saying his country needs it. I mean, all that together just hit me really hard. Yeah. On one, on one level, I was honored that I got to be the guy to talk to him. I got to be the first Christian to ever present Christ to him, to reveal, to show him a Bible, to do all that. And what also hit me wrong was the fact that he went from believing nothing to believing that this was true, to saying it was good for his, it was the best thing for his country, to rejecting it all within the same sentence. <laughs> yeah. And so all that together, I knew in a moment that I could not go back to just the job I loved anymore, that I needed to pour my life into getting this message to people like him. Mm. And that was the defining moment. That that was the defining moment. I'm wondering, what what did it look like to, to try to process that, to go, this guy went from not knowing to not believing, to believing, but also rejecting. What did it look like to process that mentally? How did that conversation with God go? Well, it was, on one level, it was exciting. Yeah. On the other level, it was, I was shocked. Because, you know, growing up in Texas, because that's where I'm originally from, I don't think I've ever met someone that said, yes, I believe this, this is true, and no thank you. Hmm. I'd never met that. I always met people who, when they got to that moment, that this is true, yes, I'm ready. So when they ever got to that mo- that moment in their life, they were ready to believe and follow and persevere. And so to finally meet someone who believed and said it was good for their country and then just flat out reject it, mm-hmm. all in the same sentence, it just, I was a little shell-shocked by it. Yeah. And, you know, I still, 18 years later, I, I didn't, keep up with him after the trip. I I have no idea where he's at, but I still think of him. Yeah. And I still think of that moment and 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 I talk about him and and but I also learned that I've met more people like him along the way. Mm. And so it, it is more common, I would say, in other places than in here, but his no was I don't know if it was a permanent no, because maybe somewhere along the line he met someone else. Mm-hmm. But definitely, I began to learn more of the cultural aspect of why he said no, because, you know, what he faced in saying no, or what he potentially faced in saying yes, I have never faced. Mm-hmm. I, I never faced the rejection of family or even the potential rejection of family or the potential of losing my job as a result of what I did in my private life. Mm-hmm. But the reality for them and many people where we work, that is the reality. That is a potential for some. And so it, it began to make some more sense over time why he did it. It just so I began to learn that it just takes more time to process it. Even, that, even after the mm. point of believing it's true, it still takes time to process more than if this is true or not. For some, it, it really takes time to process the cost of following and surrendering to Christ. Yeah. Wow. That, that's really, that's a really deep insight. You mentioned that this was a, formative experience for you. I'm, I'm assuming, and I, I realize I'm assuming that that experience might have been part of what led you toward a long-term engagement in Asia. Are, are, there, are there specific things about your ministry that you point back to that moment and say, that moment is when God started moving me in this direction? In terms of the overall long-term, it definitely was before the trip the year between surrendering to that call to ministry, and even though I didn't understand it or where it was leading, 
to actually ending up in Asia, God started putting people on my heart. I began to come across articles of people who didn't have access to the gospel, to believers in similar in, in the same area of the world who didn't have access to the Bibles, where there was a need, in many cases back then, to smuggle Bibles in. Hmm. And so I became more familiar with a ministry called Bible League about 20, about I guess that's 19 years ago now. Hmm. And so I, in that learning, even though it was a very overwhelming thought. I didn't know what to do. I had no idea I was going to be doing this for the rest of my life. I just started giving money to them. You know, for every $4 at the time, some believer in Asia got a Bible. Wow. And so I, I just began pouring as much as I could into that because I didn't know what else to do. And so that, I would say that, in terms of an international perspective, was probably the first thing that came into my life to really get me thinking about global things and not just my local stuff. And then through that, becoming more aware of it, eventually that led to Mika deciding to go on that trip, which ultimately led me to never returning to my job <laughs> and just staying focused. Literally, I mean, just I didn't even go back. It was just that was it. Yeah. And I just jumped in the deep end and went for it. Wow. That, that's, that's great. So you spent, if, if memory serves, about 13 years in Asia, full-time or pretty much full-time vocational ministry. Then about five years ago, you left that vocational work in Asia to come back to the U.S. What, what led you to that transition? Well, I actually spent nine years oh, okay. doing stuff in Asia but also serving international students in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Okay. So I was doing both full-time as a missionary. And then in 2009, my family and I moved to Asia, so we spent four years. We had originally committed to four years, and then we would come back to the States. When we came back to the States, it wasn't, okay, we're coming back for good. That was a nice ride for four mm -hmm. years. Now let's get on with life. We really came back not knowing what was going to happen. Okay. Not knowing we were going to land permanently, you could say, in South Carolina. But that is how everything happened. We knew when we left in 2013 that there was a change on the horizon. That is all we both, my wife and I, sensed. We didn't know what that change was. We knew it still had to do within the missional realm, but mm. we didn't know what that change looked like. And so what happened is, even between the international students, which was majority reaching East Asian students to our time in East Asia. So we spent 13 years serving the same kind of people just in two continents. Okay. So when we came back, it went from doing that for 13 years to launching uh, with a group of leaders, uh, Silk Road Catalyst. And, and that's, that's where the change began for us. And so it went from a purely student, East Asian primary focus to now we need to focus on the Silk Road region, which is many people would call it the 1040 window, hmm. but we call it the Silk Road. Any reason that you call it Silk Road instead of 1040? We like the name better. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> the main reason. But when you look at the 1040 window and you compare it most people, when they think of the Silk Road, they think of the literal original Silk Road, which started in the middle of China, went through Central Asia, Middle East, and into Europe. Okay. When actually there was multiple Silk Road trading routes over the centuries. And when you look at all of them, they, they do encompass almost every country in the 1040 window. Hmm. And so with that, we just, we just like it. But we also liked what the Silk Road represented. It represented trade and business and education, basically traders from one country going to a next, to another country. When Christianity first came to China, it came through the Silk Road, through missionaries from Persia, piggybacking off trade caravans from the Middle East going into China. Mm. And so they worked in tandem to get into China. Now, the missionaries weren't doing business, but it was because of the business component of the, the traders that got them through the hardship and through and into China so they could plant the first church. Wow. Which is in central China, about the 7th century, that, that the government actually acknowledges in China. Okay. Yeah. 
Wow, you know, I, I don't think I could have written a better transition to where we're headed than what you just shared. So I, I really appreciate that because we're, we're going to shift to talking about the the presence of le- legitimacy. And you've been talking about one of the ways that people used to get access to China, to Asia. But before we get into that, what is what is a presence of legitimacy? What does that phrase even mean? Oh, that's that's why the book's being <laughs> formulated. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I I tried for a long time to write it in a one paragraph definition, and that was so challenging. I, I just I just couldn't do it. But I'll, I'll try to give a a very quick overview of it. You know, it comes from you know as I as I think about what it is, it, it really was formulated out of three things. One was something I was taught by fellow missionaries who were teaching me, you could say, as I began to get my feet wet in missions, came through observation, observing what was happening, and experienced things that I was doing like everyone else was doing. Hmm. And what I began to see was, and I always want to be careful in how I explain this, but I began to see problems within how we're not in whether our ministries are legitimate. That's that's not what this book is about. It's, it's not to fix or change how one is approaching ministry. It's more about how we're approaching our secular face, you could say. Okay. Our, the face we put on to present ourselves to the local people we serve, the non-believer, and the governments of the countries we enter through to get to these people. And so it really has to do with our, our, how we present ourselves to them. Hmm. And I began to see issues that we are really, in, in many areas, presenting ourselves in a false light. And, and I get it because we were there to get the gospel there. We've, we've got to find any way possible to get the gospel to people who don't have it. I, I get that. I believe it. But I, I do believe there's a, a much better way in the sense of how we present ourselves than just simply making up stories to get there mm. that aren't exactly true. So when I say it was things I taught, I, I was taught to lie. Okay. And, and that's what it comes down to. It, you know, the missionaries who taught me, and I don't know if others have had differing experiences, but I was taught that Ra- the story of Rahab in Joshua chapter 2 gave biblical justification for me to lie about anything and everything to get a visa to enter the country so I can share the gospel. Wow. Th- this um, is... And I did. Okay. Uh, in uh, my early years. Now, when we lived there, it was different. But in my early years, I was told that. I was, I was told by long-term missionaries that, yeah, we have to lie. You know, I started business, but I'm not doing business. Hmm. I don't have time to do business. So... You know, it, it was just one thing after another. And at first, I I advocated for it. I thought, yeah, that's pretty creative, you know. But, get, but then I started thinking, so what if a Muslim missionary came to my Bible Belt neighborhood and, and they're telling everybody that they're there doing business, but, you know, we're all watching him, mm-hmm. but we're seeing he's not doing business. All we do is see him going from door to door trying to meet people and talk about the Islamic faith. Mm-hmm. How would we how would we feel if someone was doing that to us? And every time I ask that question here in the West, the immediate response is we wouldn't trust them. And so then I pose the question: Then why are we doing it? Why do we allow our own people to do that? Mm-hmm. Because it is happening. Not everyone's doing it, but it is happening more often than we like to admit. And so that's ultimately where the the idea came from. Okay. Yeah, th- th- this is a, a topic that's pretty near and dear to my heart, not because I have any experience or insight, but because I've had some guests on, and when I ask them, you know, well, how did you get access to this restricted country? They, they In some instances, they've been in that situation that you've described, and they're still processing, okay, this is this mm-hmm. is incongruent with my faith as I believe it, but it's something I felt that I had to do in order to get get access. And, and the question I have is, you know, there, there are countries out there where there's an expectation that visitors, in order to get a visa, 
will have to sign a document that says you know, that they're not going to evangelize or proselytize or try to convert anybody. Do, do we just walk away from those countries? What, what do we do? And, you know, I'm glad you mentioned that because I actually am touching on that in the book. And so, you know, when it comes to something like that, that's, that's really, it sounds hypocritical, but I say you sign the document. And I, and I know because you really, if you sign the document and hold to the document, you might as well stay home. Yeah. But in some ways, I'm not, I'm not talking so much or are we, are we there not to share? Because all these places that we go to, sharing the gospel, proselytizing, where you sign a document or not, it is against the law. And you do, as a missionary, you have to accept the risk that comes with that. And if it requires, like it did a couple of years ago with some Chinese missionaries in Pakistan, it required their life in the end. Mm. They did it anyways, even though they were doing business, they were working, they were teaching language, Mandarin language as a second language to Pakistanis. And so while they had a legitimate face from a, you could say, a pub or a secular sense in terms of their jobs mm-hmm. in the country, they were breaking the law, in essence, in Pakistan by proselytizing. And so, yes, on one, this is this is where the tension is yeah. with this. And, and in the book, I do mention it's not a perfect strategy. It's not a perfect idea. Because in what you just described, that's the tension right there. That's the biggest tension of it all. Mm. Because we have to go in and share the gospel. So we do have to accept the risk. Whatever happens, that's that's why we go. But when it comes to the rest of it, why I'm here, why, you know, whether I'm doing business or studying, how long I study, because there is an issue with how long we study. People living on tourist visas, long term, and I'm talking mm-hmm. long term, not just a year, but I, I've met missionaries who go to, through tourist visas maybe for a year to transition because they're trying to figure things out. That's That to me is okay. You could get by with that. Mm-hmm. But I'm talking about spending 10 plus years on a tourist visa. Right. And or over a decade studying a language you already speak fluently or running a business where your goal is not making money or you're not even running the business. It's just in a business card name only. Yeah, I'm talking about the biggest thing. I think that is an issue because what I'm starting to see and what really prompted me through all that to start writing this stuff down was I started meeting missionaries where even though I saw the problems took uh, about a year or two after I started seeing these things as problems before I started meeting missionaries who were actually experiencing the problems as a result of the way they presented themselves. Oh, wow. And then, and then you start seeing, especially in, uh, I know China and India specifically, are enacting new laws because they're, the governments are seeing this. They're, they're seeing people. So they're, they're, you know, China has enacted laws to prevent people from studying beyond a certain reasonable amount of time. Hmm. Or they're saying, where I've known one family who went to China, they had five kids and, and they're around 40, but they need to learn language. But the government said, no, sorry, you can't come here to learn language. It doesn't make sense for a family of seven or three or four to mm-hmm. come here and learn a language when you have to provide for your family. Yeah. And so they're enacting laws to prevent it from happening. I had a, a friend in Asia who started a business and the police, when they granted him the visa, they said, we're giving you a visa for one year, but we don't believe you're doing business in China because we've seen it too many times. Hmm. You come here, you, you say you're doing this, but we're not seeing foreigners actually do stuff like this. We're seeing it more often than foreigners who are actually doing business. And so when you start hearing police in China and I've heard of stories in Indonesia and India and government officials bringing these issues up or radicals like a lady I was looking at on Twitter in India who was posting things on Twitter about this missionary and that missionary saying they're doing work, but they're not doing it. I mean, they're actually discovering that on their own and they're making it widely known to their followers. You start realizing, okay, this problem is bigger than we think. And if we don't start to do something about it, if we don't have the conversation about our presence within these cultures and what, how we're presenting ourselves, 
this has the potential to get worse. It's not there yet, but it has the potential to become worse. And so let's have the conversation and start helping, especially newer missionaries, to start rethinking their strategy of entry and start building plans of, I study this long, I, then I transition to work, and these are my skill sets, what can I do? Mm-hmm. And then it goes into, you know, what do you do? You got to make sure you're doing things that make sense to the culture and make sense based on your skill sets, not just doing random things because you saw another missionary do it. <laughs> yeah. And so there's a whole lot of stuff that you could talk about in this that I hope the book deals with on some level. Yeah. I mean, it, it sounds like when we're talking about people who are in what we might call in a country under illegitimate pretenses, where they're not really intending to do the thing that they're saying that they're doing, that that could really kind of mess things up, not just for them, but also for people that come after them. But I'd kind of like to focus a little bit also on what makes your presence in a country legitimate. And I don't want to necessarily cover everything because I want people to buy the book when it's available. But I'm wondering, you know, if you think about the things that are required for a person's presence in a country to be legitimate, what what things need the most attention right now? Well, I, I, think, I think we've got to look at what works and what's reasonable. Hmm. When I think about what is legitimate, I don't start with what does the government think of the country I'm going to. Uh, that is important, and we do have to think about that. And we want to go through proper channels of getting the right visas. But what I'm most concerned with, the top priority, is the people I'm serving. If I am church planning among a certain people group, I need to make sure that they think my l- presence among them is legitimate. Mm. They need to think that my lifestyle is reasonable based on what my perceived income is. Mm-hmm. What I do among them needs to be reasonable. If I'm, if I'm studying language, then I study a language for a reasonable amount of time. There are cases where I believe we go beyond reasonable. You know, if we hit the 10-year mark for sure, I think we've <laughs> studied long enough. And believe me, I know people who have done that, and they become career students because it is an easy visa and they've gotten away with it. And, you know, 10 years ago, if that was the case, I probably would have done the same thing in all honesty before I started mm-hmm. learning all this. And, and, and some of them are getting away and they're doing great ministry. I'm not knocking the ministry side of it, but I, I just see the problems coming in the future. Mm-hmm. And, and so we want to, we want to think about what is reasonable amount of time to study. If I, if I get a tent making style job, or if I start a, a businesses businesses missions venture, basically starting a business in that environment, what mm-hmm. is reasonable? What makes sense? What is beneficial to the people? What benefits them from a, a tax purpose? I want to make sure I'm paying taxes that benefits the community. Mm-hmm. I want to make sure that it's it's something that's reasonable in their eyes, legitimate in their eyes. So the best example I have is this, is this guy in Southeast Asia. He started an English school. And after a couple of years, the Muslim elders came to him and said, we have questions for you. Hmm. Because he was teaching students, he was charging tuition, and he had a, a registered business in that country. But the Muslim elders went and asked him, we have discovered that your, pro- your profits are extremely minimal. And we'd like to know, how do you live the lifestyle you live on a business that makes barely any profit? Wow. And how do you live a lifestyle that's larger than ours? Because we couldn't live that lifestyle with your profits. And he basically lost his witness and his credibility in one conversation. Hmm. And so we have to think about what is legitimate to them, what he learned in that process, which he is still there from what I understand. Hmm. An English school wasn't reasonable. There was no true benefit for these people to learn English. These are not people that are going to be hopping on planes, traveling to Western countries. Hmm. But what he did do was he reevaluated his skill sets, his wife's skill sets. They looked at their surroundings. They discovered an agricultural crop that they could turn into an exportable product. And they started working with the locals to build a new business that benefited the community 
both on a broad scale, but also individuals by employing people, working with farmers, and then exporting a product globally to the point where they finally got to the place where they were moving toward being profitable. Wow. Yeah, that's great. And so he would, so it's more than just doing business. It's more than just working, but it's what is legitimate for the people, what is reasonable for them and how do they perceive it? So that to me is the biggest thing we have to deal with. And then once we realize that, then we start working through, okay, how do we do this mm-hmm. under the government that's above this country? And how do we do it above par to make sure we're doing it right? Yeah. And so that's, that's when we begin to be concerned about that side of it. One, one of the things I'm wondering, and I, I don't want to create fear or anything, but I definitely want us to be able to walk in wisdom. I'm, I'm thinking there might be somebody listening to this right now who's in that kind of situation where they're maybe not under false pretenses, but maybe weak pretenses. Maybe what they're doing isn't benefiting their community or it isn't as profitable as it seems. What would you share with somebody who's in that situation going, I need to change something? So when I, when I talk to people about what they can do, I always start with what are your skill sets? And I think we start from that vantage point. Hmm. I don't think anyone should be afraid to reexamine even if they already have a business or they're already doing something or, you know, the book talks about lifestyle, you know, there's nothing wrong with taking a step back and reexamining and adjusting your life. And so I would just, I encourage people to just do that. Just, just look at what's going on. Is it really working? Is it really seen as legitimate? Find out, you know, there's ways to ask questions, but I come from a background. I was a identity fraud researcher slash investigator for a financial company. So I love trying to ask questions to get the answers Hmm. without them knowing I'm asking the questions. (laughs) And and so I I just really encourage people, look around. Just because you can register a business doesn't mean it's what's working. I've seen businesses come and go. I have seen people start businesses and realize, like the guy in Southeast Asia, it, it took a hard situation for him to re-examine what was going on, but it forced him to re-examine and he did gain his credibility back. So Hmm. just because we have something that might not look legitimate to the local people doesn't mean we can't gain that legitimacy back if we lose it. Ah. You know, God restores us all the time. Uh, Some people might lose it permanently. Uh, That's going to happen, but it doesn't mean it has to happen. And if you can get ahead of the curve in, in the sense that if you can be the one re-examining it before someone else does in your place, then re-examine and, and readjust. And, and even, through, even if it's hard to adjust because you're talking about maybe starting a new venture or starting a new way of life, I think in the end it's worth it. Because ultimately we're not there for ourselves anyway. It's not about us. It's not about our comfort or our income, ultimately, it is about the people. And if we're there for the people, we should do whatever it takes to adjust and be legitimate to those people. Wow. <laughs> that's that's a mouthful right there. You, you kind of dropped a bomb. That's great. I do want to take a minute before we're done, because we're kind of getting close to the end. I, I do want to take a couple of minutes just to, to talk about Silk Road Catalyst. Can you share a little bit about what Silk Road Catalyst is and what you're doing through that ministry? Yeah, so when Silk Road Callus started, I would say I was really gung-ho about businesses, missions, and tent-making. Mm. And if, you, if anyone reads my book when it officially gets done and published, you'll know that it's not about businesses, missions, or tent-making. That's just a component of what it can be. But there's, there's definitely other ways that you can be legitimate in your community that you serve in. Mm. But you know, some people have taken us as you're a business's mission type ministry. And, and that's not true. What we are, we're a disciple making ministry. We are first and foremost about multiplying disciples. And it doesn't matter about anything else ultimately in the end, because if we're not disciple making, we're doing nothing. Right. And so our primary purpose is multiplying disciples in churches among the gospel deprived who are the vast majority live in within the Silk Road region, but we're also about serving the people from the Silk Road region who live outside of that region, where we're even talking with someone in Sweden about the immigrants who are coming in 
to Sweden from that region. And so we're all about disciple making. We're all about church planning. We're about multiplying them. We're about teaching people simple ways to multiply disciples. But to get to the disciple making and get to the to those people in these foreign cross-cultural contexts, we uh, take, I, I would say, multiple approaches. We definitely, as a as a group, as an organization, we really focus on having that presence of legitimacy hmm. in the cultures. And it's not just reserved for foreigners walking into foreign countries. We have nationals working with us in South Asia who are in their own country and even in their own city but they are serving in a difficult environment and they are one particular is starting a business. So he is trying to have that presence of legitimacy even among his own people. Hmm. And so we do all this ultimately to get the gospel to these people. We're, we're not a ministry to reaching Westerners in the sense that people like you and I, mm-hmm. or even Europeans that might look and sound like us with different accents. We are about reaching the people from the Silk Road region and working in collaboration with Westerners and even believers from the global South to engage those people in disciple making so that we can see everyone gain access to the gospel. Wow. Yeah, I love that. I I did notice on your website, you have a, a number of different ways for people to get involved. If somebody's hearing about Silk Road Catalyst for the first time, what is what you would think is maybe the the one or two ways that would be best for them to get started? Wow, that, you know, I always find that question difficult to answer. Because, <laughs> I mean, everyone's got their opinion on what they want to do. Yeah. You know, you know, someone who's just learning, I would say, follow us on social media and mm. get to know us. And you know, ask questions. And even after through this podcast, if someone has questions or they are struggling with something I said or upset with something I said, communicate. Because I always feel like communication is the best key to figure things out. Yeah. And But yeah, follow us on social media, Twitter, Facebook are the two things, ministry pages, my personal Twitter page. But also, you know, if someone really wants to go deeper, in exploring what we're all about and see it firsthand, I would say join one of our trips. We don't have everything listed as far as short-term trips that mm-hmm. we have out there. We have a few, but you know, next year we're going to have several more both in East and Southern Asia. And it looks like we'll have maybe some in Northern Europe in the Scandinavian countries doing some prayer walking around some immigrant communities from the Silk Road. And so I would say outside of uh, observing and watching on social media and engaging with us in conversation is just come and see it for yourself. I, I've never met anyone who is disappointed. Well, one other question before we, before we do draw this to a close. How can we best pray for you? One of the things that I am personally trying to develop is not a, a purely Western workforce within Silk Road Palace, that we're, I'm working to develop a very multinational workforce. So in dealing with, you could say, our non-Western counterparts and even our current non-Western team members, you know, when you add that cross-cultural element to a team, it, it, the challenges increase exponentially at that point. Yeah. And, and so, you know, just, just that God would continue to give us a clear communication, that God would rise up more people like our team in South Asia, our friends that we've met in Sweden who are from Iran, that God would continue to rise up more people like that in addition to the Western missionaries who are rising up. Mm. Because, you know, to finish the task— You know, missions is not about the West going to the rest. It's about the reach going to the unreached. Right. And so I I would say one one thing that is universally a need to be praying for is that God would raise up more people who are less like you and I and, and more closely like the people we're trying to reach. Wow. So that we can continue to dig deeper as a church, as a body of Christ, to dig deeper into the unreached and to the gospel deprived, because I think that's 
one of the most necessary things that we need to see increased so the gospel can go further. If it's dependent on the West, it's going gonna, it's gonna to fall apart. <laughs> yeah. No it, it just is. It's, it's not going to go very far. It'll go farther in some respects, but it's not going to finish it. So we really need more of the non-Western people in addition to the Western missionaries going out. That's a big, that's a long answer trying to say once to say. <laughs> yeah, that's great. For, for those of you listening, I would encourage you to take a minute to go ahead and pray for Steve and for Silk Road Catalyst. We will have all of the resources and the contact information for Steve listed in the show notes page. So if you want to call him or shoot him an email or send him a, a message on social media, all of that's going to be available for you right there. Steve, thank you so much for being with us. I really appreciate it. Yes, Brian. Thank you. Thanks for letting me. And, and I, I'll just I'll just say this if, again: if anyone has questions or things they just didn't understand or they disagree with me on, then I would just encourage them to reach out to me and, and communicate, and so we could dialogue and communicate about what my book is about. I'd like to say one more huge thank you to Steve Shermer for taking the time to do this. He was incredibly valuable with his time. He provided me some resources to help me prepare, and he really brought it in terms of some of the things that he shared. Certainly a lot of things for us to think about, and I think it helps add to what we need to consider when we look at cross-cultural ministries. I'd also like to say thanks to Jeff and Gabby for the work that they do to help make this show possible. You may not see the work that they do because it's all behind the scenes, but they really bring a lot to the table, and I really appreciate appreciate that. Also, there have been a number of you that have recently been providing feedback or helping spread the word about the show. I've seen likes and retweets and comments and shares and things like that. I've also gotten feedback by email. So for those of you that have taken the time to do that, I just want to say thank you. I appreciate that. It means a lot to get that feedback and also to see that people are sharing what we have here. I think that what our guests are bringing to the table is valuable, and I appreciate you helping us get the word out. Show notes for this week's episode are available at engagingmissions.com slash Steve Shermer. Or if you're listening in your favorite podcast app right now, because why wouldn't you? Just tap on through to the show notes right there. Most of them have a way to link right to the website, and you can check those out right there. You'll find places to connect with our guest, as well as comments and things like that from that. And if you have any feedback specific for that episode that you want to leave as a comment, I'd love to see that as well. Make sure that you come back next week. We're going to be hearing from Kenton Moody about some of the things that God is doing in El Salvador. It was a really great conversation. I think you're going to enjoy hearing what God's doing and some of the insights that he brings to the table. If you want to make sure that you don't miss that and you haven't already subscribed to the show, visit engagingmissions.com slash subscribe. That's where you're going to find ways to connect using your favorite podcast app. However it is that you prefer to receive podcasts, you can choose that right there. Select it, sign up to get the show, and it'll be delivered for free every single week. Then be back in a couple of weeks. We're going to hear from Kenton, and I'm really looking forward to connecting with you then. So long for now.